Hey, this is Dave Broadbeck, uh, as you guess, considering the title of the podcast. But anyway, uh, this uh, lecture you're about to hear is for Biology slash Psychology 2606, Introduction to Behavioral Neuroscience, which is a way better name than what we used to call this course, which was Brain and Behavior. You know, we don't call childhood development crawling and walking. Uh, so anyway, uh, brain and behavior is what we used to call it. We now call it introduction to behavioral neuroscience. This is for the uh, fall term of 2019. I hope you, uh, get something out of this lecture, uh, especially if you're one of my students. If you're not one of my students, I really don't care if you get something out of it. I just hope you're entertained. Frankly, I'm kind of like that with the students. I kid, I kid because I love. Enjoy. Okay, so I think this is where we were talking about, we started talking about genetics, is that right? A week ago, so I kind of forget. So you have to use your mom, have to be dad. Uh, and single genes can affect the characteristic, though that's not. We don't tend to think of that as much as many genes affecting the characteristic. So again, I think I mentioned, yeah, I used the eye color example, that's a single gene. Whereas, we usually think of many genes, especially for more complicated behaviors. Because okay. typically what's happening is we're affecting the nervous system, which affects behaviors. Right? But it's always, as I said, I keep giving, I'm saying this all the time, it's always an interaction <coughs> between the genes and the environment. And it's a complicated thing. We can talk about how much variance is accounted for by variance in genetics and how much variance is accounted for by variance in environment, but that doesn't mean it's 80%, as I said, of my height. Height is 80% heritable, but it doesn't mean everything up to my neck is the genes and everything is this environment. That's not how it works. Okay. So I'm going to give you an example of a condition, a, a genetic condition that humans can have that affects <coughs> behavior and affects the nervous system. The example is ocular cutaneous albinism, which is something I have. Okay. I have the variant called OCA1, which is probably the most common. There's a single gene that's involved in the production of melanin. Melanin's pigment. It's the stuff all you people have in your skin and your hair that I know. Um, it's actually not melanin per se, the production of it. It's breaking down uh, Tyrosine. So I don't make tyrosinase. 
Oh, I make it. It's just a real shitty version that doesn't actually break the antivirus. Okay. So what happens is you have to break down tyrosine to make melanin. I can't because I don't make the tyrosinase I make. My body makes doesn't work. Okay. So therefore, I don't make melanin. So unless I'm just calling it A, big A, little A. I figure for albinism, but this isn't something you'd be using in the literature. But it's a pure dominance recessive relationship where big A gives you normal, like you guys all have it. I don't think anybody, I can't tell you, I don't think anybody here has albinism. Little a is the bad allele. And yes, I said normal. This condition is one in 17,000 live births in the world. It's abnormal. I'm not normal. I'm not offended by that. It's a statistical concept. Does it offend you that I just said I'm not normal? Get over yourself. I didn't say you weren't normal. I said I wasn't. It's not normal. <laughs> the fact that anybody laughed at that's hilarious because it actually is a quote from a movie that none of you have seen. Um, well, maybe you have. You seen Quadrophenia? Anyone? Stin was in it. Some mods in the '60s. Didn't think so, but nonetheless, it's not normal. So it's a dominance recessive relationship. Okay. So what you have is all the combinations that have a big A in them lead to normal phenotypes. But if you have two bad alleles, it leads to me. Okay. And by convention, I'm gonna the one on the left is from the father, the one on the right is from the mother. The first one's the father, the second one's the mother. Okay. So, we'll start with looking at my parents. These pictures are about 20 years old. That's why my dad looks about the same age as me right there. Um, and God damn it, do I miss my father? Uh, so, we don't know what their genotypes are, or were in the case of my father. But I can say it's got to be some variation of these, because they ended up with a kid with albinism, and they are phenotypically normal. Right? So they're phenotypically normal, and I am not. But both of them are. Okay. You'll hear more about my dad as time goes by, because um, my dad is, is going to end up being a really good example of some stuff. My dad was killed by a brain tumor in 2008. And one big thing that comes of that is that there's all kinds of teachable moments of what happened to my dad's brain. Okay, so they have one in four chance that of having a kid with albinism because there's four possible genotypes, right? Big A, big A, big A, little A, little A, big A, and two little A's. So one in four chance, anytime they had a kid, was going to be a kid with albinism, and they did. There's no dominance, pure dominance, recessive relationship. So they, it must be the case then that my we know my genotype. It's little a, little a. 
see you there. I'm the one on the left. <laughs> Bad glasses. You know, kids today, yeah, kids today. You ever seen a baby with glasses now? Because they strap around, eh? Yeah, they're great. They didn't have those then. I've worn glasses since I was 18 months old. I used to take my glasses and just take them off and throw them off the balcony of our apartment. Science, I'm just testing this gravity. Mm -hmm. I don't know who those kids are. I've asked my mom, she doesn't remember. All I know is those pictures were taken, uh, you know the apartments across from Churchill Plaza on Lake Street? There, it's weird, I was actually born here. We, le we left in 1967. Like, I, don't, I remember a couple very small details. But that's where we lived. I like the fact, if you look, I think this kid's actually looking at into space. This kid, I think he's actually looking at the camera. I don't know where I am, because I can't see! So, <laughs> not sure. It's an odd picture, it's a horrible picture. So, my brother Dan and my sister Steph, they may be carriers of the allele. We don't know. We do know, but they are phenotypically normal. The reason I use these old pictures is because they're all taken at the same time, and they were um, for my grandmother's 85th birthday or something we all did them. So there's my brother up top. There's just two girls. and. Put it this way, the one on the left is 26 tomorrow. Holy shit, it's summer's birthday. Uh, and the one on the right is a tattoo artist, which is awesome. One on the left works in a legal office. My brother's a record producer, and he's uh, all Mr. Rock and Roll famous. And also, um, he's a professor at Fanshawe College, runs the Music Industry Arts program. Yes, that's right, the other professor brought back that never finished high school. I'm not bitter. Just the hell I can play guitar like that. And then down there is my sister, and that's her two kids. And again, to give you an idea of how old this is, yeah, he's in third year at Western. So, um, and there's a whole other kid now, too. Now, the kids could carry the alleles, but we don't know if they do. But it's possible. But they're phenotypically, everybody's phenotypically normal, yes? And you can tell my, my brother's uh, younger daughter has a tattoo artist because that's back before his whole body was covered almost completely except his face and tattoos. It's like a festival of tattoos. Hey, look, whatever you're into. I imagine it would hurt, so I'm never getting tested. I just be like, oh, 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 the whole time. It doesn't sound like fun. It's like going on a roller coaster. What the hell kind of idiot does that? Yeah, I'm gonna feel like I'm gonna die. Doesn't seem like fun to me. Whatever you're into, you be you. Okay, so why am I telling you this? Oh well, first of all, my kids, yeah, let's look at me. Must get a bad allele from me, because that's the I only have that's the only version I have, and they must get a big A from Isabel, or they we, we look at their phenotype. This is it's gonna be about 2002, no, a little later, 2003. She's an artist, and she's also a French prof here, so you might run into her on the left. 
one of the new there. She's a PhD student now. So again, this is a long time ago. And also, I used to weigh more and have more hair. So, and wear a watch because I need to carry a computer in my pocket because that wasn't a thing back then. So we know that my kids are, our kids are normal phenotypically for their pigment, right? You can see it. So why do I bring this up? Well, there's kind of, there are behavioral effects here. This single gene has affected the way I behave. I don't spend much time in the sun. I burn immediately. Oh, so do I, nothing like me. Do you wear sunscreen on days like this? One can. I once got third degree burns from the sun. July 4th, 1976, Portland, Maine. Maine. Hold back was a blister, it was great. Because um, they didn't used to sell sunscreen. You had to get it like with a prescription because people were stupid in the 70s. And you, when you got your prescription, as the, the pharmacist who's having a smoke hands it to you. Um, so that's not much time in the sun. I have very poor vision. Uh, as I mentioned in the term, my, my vision is 2200, which means we can see at 200 meters, so I see at 20. Same detail. Melanin guides the growth of the visual system. And if it does that, so that now we're in the visual system, we're into the brain here. The, one of the functions that melanin has, has a lot of them. Like a lot of proteins, it'll do a lot of things. One of the things it does is it, the rest of you lucky bastards, is it protects your skin from sun, from getting sunburned. Right? Good for you. Yay. You're all very lucky. And I hate you all. But, don't hate you. I tolerate every one of you. So, Tough room. Uh, so, the other, one of the other things it does is it guides the growth of the visual system. Okay? So, my visual system didn't have this signaling molecule going over here, come over here, over here. It didn't have that. So, I, my, when it was developing, it just went, oh, I'm going to go wherever the hell I want. So, because of that, I don't have binocular vision. The cells, in fact, in my occipital lobe that would that are that are long dead, but would have they have to fire by the time you're about two to detect differences in your, in the, in the um, images on your retina and also detect the convert detect the convergence of um, when you focus on an object. I didn't do that, so those cells are dead. They died. If you look. It's probably hard to see, but I don't even see it. But if you look, my eyes shake back and forth all the time. My eyes are trying to focus. They can't. It's hard to tell. I don't even see that. But, um, weird thing is the image isn't shaking to me. My brain rates it. But all these things mean I don't have binocular vision. I can't see. I can't directly apprehend how far away something is. I, I can do it by knowing things. She's behind you because of her missing. Tell that, but I can't do it by saying. Whereas you guys like compare like reality to a TV. I'm like it's like a TV. Everything's flat. Well, I mean, that's what you would say. I don't know what it looks like from the CPS. 
The worst thing is going to 3D movies and everybody's like, ooh, and I'm going, oh, shut up. Just shut up. You got to wear the glasses because it's all fuzzy. And you sit there going, I'm glad, I'm glad this cost me $18. Bullshit. So, I can't drive a car. Now, it's not because I don't have a car driving gene, but I couldn't pass the eye test. There's no way. I haven't tried, but you wouldn't want me driving a car. It'd be bad for the, for the, for the public of this country if I was driving a car. I've driven a car, well, I've driven once at a test place. Just after my wife got her driver's license, we bought a car. She said, let's so we drive it, because you know, when you first get a car, you go for it, go, literally go for a drive, because driving's a thing for not just function. It's like, this is cool, we have a car. So we stopped, and she said, yeah, you can drive. It's a, it's a test course in London, Ontario. And I said, I can't drive. And she said, you play lots of video games, you can drive. So I sit down, and she says, that's the accelerator, that's this, oh, good. And I'm going along, going about 30 kilometers an hour. Like, I'm not going fast. And I need to corner, everything's fine. My, Ten-month-old daughter strapped into the back, and then I stopped. But I, I played a lot of video games, but I didn't realize that brakes were—it wasn't an on-off thing. So I slammed the brakes on. <laughs> <laughs> there was one time my wife was on a long trip. She was on a trip to Algeria. Don't ask. My wife takes takes odd trips, and it was raining, and she didn't take the car because it's a long drive to Algeria plus the ocean. So she left the car, and it was pouring rain, and I needed milk. I had little kids then. It's like, no, I have a car. <laughs> Perhaps, I mean, I'm just driving out onto Queen Street, down to Max. I'm not pulling in. I can turn around. That's easy. Yeah. I think. Then I thought, idiot, it's raining. That's going to make it worse. So I didn't go. But I can't drive a car because I can't, because it's a vision. I'm not very good at baseball. Oh, I can swing. I can throw and catch. It's a matter of doing those things at the right time. The catching is the hardest thing, like playing outfield. It's like, okay, I'm just got to be somewhere here. <laughs> oh, there it is! You know? Hockey's different. I was able to play hockey, but that's because I'm Canadian and it's in the Constitution or something. But um, hockey was a little different because the flow of the game's easier to follow. Baseball's weird because the ball just comes off the bat and it's like, uh-oh. And I played football in high school, but that's pretty... When you're making strong, and I was this big when I was 15 years old. I'm not huge or anything, but you're 15 if you're 6'1", 180, 190. You know, so I, I, played, I didn't play tight end, which is what I wanted to play because, you know... <laughs> oh, there's the Play defensive tackle. But see, these are all from a single gene doing this. And the environmental interaction is interesting because I ride a bicycle. You're thinking, how the hell's that? Well, there are people who have my same vision who have a guide dog and a white cane. Because they were not brought up the way I was brought up. So I was brought up that try shit and if you screw it up, fine. I'm not saying it's bad that people have white canes and dogs, because that's what makes them comfortable, allows them to get through, through the day. That's cool. But my parents didn't raise me like that. It was interesting, on the, you know, I was on a trip. I'm coming from Philadelphia to Minneapolis on 
Friday. And there's a blind guy waiting for the, because we, we blind people get on the plane first. And people in wheelchairs would like, anybody need extra help? Right here, dude. I don't need help. I just want no one in my way as I'm looking at the things going, 18D, 18B. So I'm standing there as a blind guy. I can tell he's a blind guy because he couldn't, obviously, was looking at his phone like I do. Also, he had a white cane. He was also wearing high-top Chuck Taylors, which are the official shoes of blind people. <laughs> the strangest thing. The strangest thing. So this is usually where I ask if you have any questions about my disability because it doesn't offend me. And usually people are curious because there's very few of us that you probably probably have met one of us. That's a joke, but though I'm pretty bright. They don't give you all these letters after your names. You're pretty bright. Any questions? If you don't have any, it's fine. But if you do, uh, it doesn't offend me in any way. And it is weird that you probably never met someone like me because I'm pretty awesome. <laughs> you good? Sure. Okay. Good. You ask me, no problem. Um, I can say that people like me in Sub Saharan Africa are literally hunted and killed. So it's here I can live a completely normal life. I just gotta put sunscreen on and not drive a car. Um, if I lived in a lot of places in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, I'm hunted down because I'm magic and parts of me are used in things. So if you check out, the United Nations has a website called, uh, I forget what it's called. It's got a name. But the UN, um, it's a serious issue, of course. And if you go to albinism.ohcnr.org, that's run by the UN, the United Nations. Oh, yeah, it's called People of Albinism, Not Ghosts, but Human Beings. And you can see one of the, uh, see on my phone here, one of the profiles is of me. Including me looking at my phone. The lead picture is literally me looking at my phone. So it's picture taken by Dwayne Keel. All right. So. Oh, please, where? Who had a question? Oh, right there. I'm sorry. I was, I was just gonna yeah. say that if anyone's interested about that topic too, I found a documentary on um, people with albinism in like in those areas. They had like full videos talking to people that have been attacked as well. Yeah, it's really brutal. Yeah. Those are, it's uh, just because you look different. Mm. Yeah. So I guess I'm magic or something at all. Yeah. My, my, you know what my, my, my superpower is? I can completely ruin your life by failing you in this question. Um, <laughs> well, no, I don't fail you. You do. Somebody else had a question you said? I just can't see where. Oh, yeah. no, I was just going to tell you that she had a question. Oh, okay, that's it. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so, so you were telling her that she had a question. Okay, yeah, right. well, cool. just tell you. That's good. Wait, Thanks. I have a question. Yeah, yeah. Like, am I just as likely to have a child with albinism as someone in your family? Is it a gene? Yeah, it's like a single gene. Okay. Remember, it's a single yeah. gene for the production, in the, in involved in the pr process of producing uh, melanin. Okay. So chances are you're not going to, right? Chances are you're going to have phenotypically normal kids. Yeah. Does anyone in your Somewhere, both sides of the family have stories about ants like 100 years ago. 
but no one really knows. Because it's so rare to run into two people with it, you can go generations without it ever showing up. Like, and I mean, when I say generations, I mean five or 10, right? Five or 10, so it's, it's one of those things. And a lot of these rare genetic disorders are like that. So it surprises me. Like it's a real, I'm sure it was a real surprise to my parents. You know, because you can tell right away, like when you're born and you have hair this color, what's going on? More or less, all people with albinism have a poor vision, yes. Um, I'm about the, the standard visual problem is about 2200, but um, there are people who have better vision, about 2080. Um, by the way, it's, it's completely non corrective. My glasses all they do is fix the astigmatism and the nystagmus, the um, cross, one cross eye. You know, when I take my glasses off, my eye crosses. So that fixes that. But it doesn't fix the, you can't fix my phone I don't have one. Um, or fix my So usually it's something, the best I've seen of people that I've met, they're about 2080, the worst I've heard about 2800, which I can't even imagine. It's like, you need a dog there. You know, you walk into stuff all the time. I'm a member of a couple of Facebook groups. And it's mostly people's parents of kids and they're like, what's gonna happen? It's like, I'm fine. Oh, let me you. Don't worry about it. Kids are cool now. They aren't really evil like they were when I was young. Easy to the point where you want to commit suicide. But, oh, that, sorry, that came out a long time ago. So most of them apologize. Most of them. <coughs> Other questions? Oh, yeah, please, sorry. That's a really neat question. I doubt there's an effect there, but that's a really neat question. Uh, you probably just need a critical amount for the visual system to grow properly. That's a really neat question. I don't, that's, I, I have said that four times. I doubt there's an effect there. I'd be surprised if there was an effect there. But it's cool. But I mean, for example, people with very fair skin still are seem perfectly fine, right? And I don't think there's any differences in visual acuity between people who have really dark skin and people with really light skin. I think you just need a certain, the right, you need enough. But I think the threshold is pretty damn low. Yeah. And of course, part of how dark your skin is and stuff is where you live. It's not just the fact that the, the, the genetics of it, like everything else. That's a neat question, right? That's five times. Anything else? Right here. Please. <laughs> Sorry. It's all good. I just wanted to tell you. Does your eyesight uh, uh, affect your color? No, no, I see color vision just fine. Okay. I, I discriminate colors just like you do. <laughs> yeah. So no, so I, what I'm saying is I, I, I would call, you're wearing like an orange shirt. Yeah, it's an orange shirt. We can both, we can all see that. You know, uh, you got like yellowish hair. <laughs> well, no, I just pick the things I see. Uh, orange, black, white, yeah, it's, is this green? Is it blue? Is it teal? I don't know what we call this color, but we all agree that it's that weird color, right? So, yeah, my color vision is a factor. Just my 
regular old digits. <laughs> Anything else? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I was raised a different way uh, than most people that have my problems. So. For my age, now it's perfectly common. Right. But when I was a kid, it was not common for people who, who were literally legally blind to have, um, to have their parents just let them do whatever the hell they wanted to. You know? When the person came from the CNIB and said, I was five years old, I'd like to meet your son. And my dad said, he's out of his bike. And she said, he can't ride a bike. And my dad said, there he goes. <laughs> so. Now, I have written, when I was a kid, I did go into a parked car. That was because I was looking at the new cool mirror I got. You know how things happen like that when you're a kid? One kid gets a mirror on their bike, and everybody's like, I need a mirror too. So I'm like looking right in the mirror. And of course, I'm looking at my clothes because I'm. Bam. It was an unpleasant side effect that I'm not going to tell you about. It was very unpleasant. It's all hurt like hell. So let's talk about hamsters. Mutant hamsters. There's one now. Uh, the hamster's not named Martin Ralph. That's Marty Ralph there. He's got two first names. No, he doesn't. His last name's Ralph. Just when he first started the movie, some people called him Ralph Martin because they weren't sure what his name was. That's funny. So um, he discovered a gene. He was breeding hamsters. He discovered this gene called the tau gene. Well, he named it. And big T, big T gives you a 24-hour you being a hamster cycle. Okay, that's your circadian rhythm. Um, little T, little T gives you a 20-hour cycle. So now days are 20 hours long for those hamsters. And then the homozygous version, sorry, heterozygous version gives you a 22 hour clock. Now, this was a mutation that happened as he was breeding hamsters. This doesn't exist in the wild. An animal who doesn't have its biological clock tuned into the rotating of the earth dies very quickly because it ends up not being in sync with the earth, so it wakes up at the wrong time and ends up getting, those genes don't get passed on. Okay. So this hamster gene, it's a single gene effect, but it's affecting a, the development of the brain and in a very specific part called the SCN, <coughs> suprachiasmatic nucleus. It's near the optic chiasm. Oh, I see. It's the clock. And the clock gets set by the sun rising. Optic chiasm. Let's see. That's right here where there's going to be signals coming in from the eye saying there's light. That makes complete sense. So the SCN actually will pulse on its own. It's a clock. So if you take it out of uh, a hamster and you put it in a feed dish, it still fires and it just pulses. It's a clock. What you can do actually is take the SCN from a mutant and drop it into a wild type spray. Wild type is normal. Um, and it now has a 20 hour clock. So that's, I mean, and, and it's almost certainly like that does. So the SC, your, your SCN is your clock for day long timing. There's almost certainly some cognitive effects here other than the timing. Because keeping track of when and where is an important thing to do. Right? So you have to know where and when you, you, you met a mate or had food or whatever. 
pretty cool. So that's these hamsters. So Drosophila are um, fruit flies. They're much smaller than that. That is not actual size. That would be disturbing. Oh, that's funny. It says, it says the white rat of genetic so what you can do with Drosophila is you can, um, and some of you people probably know this because maybe you've taken genetics, is you can, there are methods to, 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 to mutate very specific genes or very specific loci, loci on a gene. Okay? It's funny, everybody says loci, but if it's the Latin, it would be loci. Um, okay, so here's some, these are learning mutants. These are, a fact, these are, these are um, quantifications on certain genes, and they, they, they are named, they have names, and they're about specific behavior. So dice is a, is a mutation where they can't learn. What are, they getting, what are they learning? They're learning about where they get shocked. Okay. So you have these fruit flies, and they're in like a beaker, or a, you know, like maybe an aquarium, some such thing. And there's a little thing sticking up, and it's it's going to shock them. Don't, please don't protest about fruit flies. They're freaking fruit flies. Anyway. So what happens is usually a fly lands on that thing once, and it doesn't land on it again. In fact, they usually spend the most of their time on the other end of the aquarium. It's like, yeah, I'm getting away from that. that it hurts for the way <coughs> These guys who have this mutation, they land on it. Boom, dee, dum, dee, dum. Oh, that hurt. Oh, man. i got to go land somewhere. What about there? Oh, wow. I'm not putting that together at all. I'm a stupid fruit fly. That's my impression of the fruit fly with big dunce. <laughs> Single gene. Amnesia. What would that be? Well, you know what? It's, they can learn it about the, the shock prod, but they forget after 15 seconds. So they get shocked. They go, oh, yeah, that's horrible. I, man, now I'm going to go over here with the rest of you guys. Can you believe that thing over there? It's awful. Wow. Okay, well, oh boy, where am I? Where was I? Oh, yeah, I'm going to land right here. Ah! Again, fruit flies don't actually speak, but if they did, it would be a lot like that. So, that's amnesia. Stuck. They don't get stuck on the prod. This is about uh, mating behavior. When the male, when, when a mummy fly and a daddy fly really like each other, and have had a little bit to drink. <laughs> no, no. When they're mating, the stuck ones don't come on. <coughs> the male doesn't release from the female. You probably never thought about fruit fly sex before, have you? Now you have. So they're stuck. <laughs> Quintus interruptus, the male pulls out. Before he inseminates the female.
you know, like grade eight health class that you're being told this stuff, except not how it flies, you're being told, that is not a reliable method of birth control by a really embarrassed gym teacher. Bang sensitive, sounds like it's about sex. It's actually not. So easy, you put the fruit flies in a, in a test tube, and you hit it, finger, and bang sensitive ones get like all stunned and knocked out for a couple of minutes. They get sort of, if you want to call it, unconscious. They wake back up, but then, yeah. My favorite one, because I think we all have a favorite learning mutant in Drosophila, is her. Now, first of all, it's sad that they, they stopped giving them these clever names. Right? Like, Dunce. This baby is the shark brother. Ah! Amnesia stuck. These are all great names. They Per. What's Per? Per stands for periodicity. Periodicity. That means for timing. So the per flies have this issue where they can't do things in the right order. They do certain things for too long, like a mating, a courtship dance. They do things and like they, it gets all screwed up. They, their circadian rhythm's all messed up. Wait, what? Didn't we just hear about circadian rhythms? Why, yes, yes we did. When you take a look at the base pair sequence, Um, in the tau gene in the hamster and the per gene in Drosophila, they're in essence the same. They're over 99% exactly the same series of codons, which is really effing cool. What else is cool is if there's a, if you look at fungi, slime molds, slime molds grow on a 24 hour cycle. Everything in this planet happens on a 24 hour cycle because it spins. When you look at the gene that controls growth rates in slime molds, it's the same gene. The common ancestor between slime molds, Drosophila, and hamsters was a long freaking time ago. You can guess that evolution would have sort of figured out very early on that you should be able to somehow code time. So what's this all mean? What is a gene for behavior? Well, behavioral differences are caused by a genetic difference is something we would say, but it's not quite that simple. It means that the variance in genetics overlaps with the variance in behavior. So it's not, so when someone says caused by, that's what they mean, if they're a professional. It doesn't ever or hardly ever mean a complex behavioral sequence is caused by a single gene. That's really rare. So lots of genes contribute to behavior. 
like my son has autism and there's clearly some genetic variance component there, but it's not a single gene. There's no way it's a single gene. It's a bunch of genes operating together with the environment. We don't know what they are yet. I would imagine that'll be pretty soon, but we don't know that yet. Just because something is a genetic basis does not mean it's unchangeable. This is one of the things that really strikes me whenever I talk about genetics and behavior, is that people who don't understand this stuff and hear genetics and hear behavior think, immediately jump to like, oh, you think biological determinism, blah, blah, and it really drives me nuts. Is that, I, it's like, when did I say that? So something, have a, something can be completely genetic, a 1.0 heritability. One point of, right? So something like, I'm just going to look this up. Make sure I pronounce it properly. Okay, so PKU, you know what PKU is? It's pronounced phenylketonuria. I always mess it up, that's why I just looked it up. So what it is, is a disorder <coughs> where you can't metabolize phenylalanine, which is a, an amino acid. So you can't metabolize phenylalanine, and when you have, when that happens, this used to be in fact the number one cause of mental retardation in Western industrialized countries. So what happens is this affects brain development, this build up of phenylalanine, and you end up being, at the time, when this used to be a thing that was a, a problem, it ended up being, you ended up being severe mental retardation. <coughs> then they figured out we could test this, and it literally is something you inherit. It's, one, it's a 1.0. It's like your freaking eye color. And the heritability is 1.0. So what happens now when you're born is that you stay in the hospital for 24 hours, right? <coughs> right? So at least 24 hours. And on around hour 23 or so, they come and take your kid and poke their foot and take a blood sample. And when it's your first kid, it makes you sad because you see your, hear your kid cry and you realize, well, when you're older, it's no big deal. What they're doing is they're testing this for PKU. And if your kid has PKU, you know what they do? They give you a list of foods your kid can't eat. That's all it is. Just don't give them these foods. That's a long freaking list. Find the list here, but it's, it's like all kinds of food. The kid basically is given with a diet, low in foods that of course can eat phenylalanine. Uh, baby should special, special formula instead of milk, small amount of milk. And it goes on for about 10 years. Used to be people thought it was lifelong, but apparently now you hit around just before puberty, you can start having a regular diet. <laughs> uh, let's see, just trying to find treatment. Treatment. Oh, there's the diet there. Okay. Uh, PKU detectable, blah, blah, blah. Scrolling, scrolling.
Okay, here we go. Here's what you can't eat. Soybeans, egg whites, shrimp, chicken breast. Uh, what else we got here? Watercress, fish, nuts, crayfish, lobster, tuna, turkey, legumes, low-fat cottage cheese. Starchy foods such as potatoes and corn are generally acceptable in controlled amounts. So there's stuff you can't eat, and you're just told, don't feed your kids these foods. And then the kid develops normally, completely normally. And this is completely heritable. It's a 1.0 heritability. Yet, the effect on behavior, as long as we control it with environmental input, in other words, you diet, you're fine. Pretty cool, right? So it says, you should know this, that genotype is not phenotype. So if I know your genotype, I can't necessarily, I can bring in some guesses, but I'm not going to know, even if something is 1.0 heritable, it doesn't mean I'll say, you will behave like this. Your brain will develop like this. Right? All right, questions? So let's move on to our next one. So my hope is that we may end up, I don't know if we're going to end up finishing this stuff on Wednesday, but we'll definitely finish it by Monday and we'll be able to then have question and answer like for the test, like review stuff. Okay? Does that make sense? Do you want that? Or do you want, I, I can just keep doing this. I get, the lectures are ready. You probably want to do review that, right? Okay. So our next topic, though, we'll just start on this, is neural communication. on that um, electricity plays some high role in neural communication. So this guy Galvani, you ever heard of a galvanic skin response? That's like what a what they uh, <coughs> a light detector, which isn't a light detector. He didn't invent it, but the idea of it being something to do with electricity was, was, was proposed by this guy Galvani. And what he did is he did an experiment where he had a frog. It's a long time ago, don't freak out. So he had a frog hanging down on a board. Again, this isn't nice. And he had an electrode attached to its muscle. Now, the thing is, you can't, people, this guy lived in like the 1700s, so they knew about electricity, but you couldn't generate your own. This is like 1760-ish. <coughs> so you can't generate your own electricity like we could, right? So what he does is he hooks up like a lightning rod, and then he attaches it to a wire, copper wire, to a frog leg. And then when a storm starts, the frog leg moves. No, it's awesome. Um, it's clever as hell. You gotta think about this. These are people that, this is like the 1760s. Science has just been invented a couple of, about 100 years earlier. And it's like, it's kind of clever. It's weird and gross, it's fair. But it's also clever. 
Um, people started seeing something with people who have epilepsy. This is now into the 1800s. People with that, when they would see with epilepsy that, that the signal that was screwed up, they didn't know what the signal was. They thought it was electrical, but that's all they knew. But they saw that something happened during what's called, a, they could call it the Jacksonian March. The March part is because you can watch a seizure go from one part of the body to another. It marches along. Okay? So it moves along. So it'll start in the face, let's say, and move down, and it would, in fact, as we would know, move down through dermatomes. So it's like, okay, it's going along, it's not instantaneous. So there's some sort of communication thing going on. And again, they say it's got to be, it's, it's, it's electrical. But it's not instantaneous, so there's something else going on too. Because a lot of people figure it was instantaneous. If you read old physiology notes from these times, uh, people figure that it, it, it's all electrical and it's in, instantaneous. The evidence from the clinical evidence of these seizures sort of slowly moving along a body tell you it can't be instantaneous. Um, a couple of German researchers, Fritsch and Hitzig, stimulated the cortex of various animals and they got twitches. They got movement. Okay. So they, and they stimulated it with electricity. At this point now we have crude batteries so you can you cut it your head open and then you touch the cortex and you get a little bit of movement. Okay. So it's pretty clear that something's going on. Okay, this medical doctor, MD, I think it's John Bartholow, in, I believe, Columbus, Ohio, home of the Blue Jackets. I'm so excited for hot disease. So excited. <coughs> um, and he's got this patient, she's got a, a tumor on her skull. So the tumor's removed, but that means skull exposed. So she wore a hat, and I'm not kidding, I'm not trying to get to see she wore a hat, because, you know, exposed skull bad. And so this jerk, what he does, he thinks to himself, oh, now I can use science on this one, with an exposed skull. So she comes in for like examinations and stuff, and he's like, okay, what happens if I do that? So you have to and I'm the jerk. So, and then like, like, that's horrible. What? Like, that's just being a dick, right? I mean, it's awful. And you might think, oh, well, it's the 1800s. He was sanctioned by the American Medical Association. He was told he couldn't practice medicine again. So even like 1850, people were like, dude, little, that's a little too far. Can't do that. So he ended up getting a job as a clinical professor at the University of Maryland. Because apparently there are no laws in Maryland. I don't want you to remember Bartholo's name. I want you to remember Mary Rafferty, because <laughs> she's the hero here. Bartholos jerk, an unethical, 
piece of human garbage. But Mary Rafferty, like, now she, she ends up dying, of course, because, you know, exposed skull. Um, I mean, I'd like to know her name, but the person, he's always mentioned as the guy that think about, you should think about Mary Rafferty. This poor woman, she's a victim here, basically an assault. So it pisses me off a little bit. And eventually, of course, we get to the point where in Canada we have Dr. Wilder Penfield at the Montreal Neurological Institute. And Penfield was a neurosurgeon. And see, you know how they find out where your brain tumor is today? They put you in an MRI and go, oh, that's right there. What they used to have to do is they take your skull off and start zapping your brain with electrodes until they found usually a sensation that you had when you had a seizure. It's common enough that certain sensations go with seizures. It's not always the case, but and it's usually something like a smell. And there's this, you know, those heritage moment things. And says, Dr. Penfield, I smell burnt toast. And she would always smell burnt toast just before she had a seizure. So they're trying to find out where there's something wrong with her brain. And again, today you put a person in an MRI for 20 minutes, and it's right there. But what you do back then, in like the 19-teens, 1920s, is Wilder Penfield cuts your head open. And pokes around. Now, if it's smell, he's got a good idea. It's going to be close to the olfactory bulb. Who knows? So he starts inserting electrodes and giving you a little zap. Okay? This should tell you something. You're awake during this. Now, the local anesthetic is pretty intense. Uh, so they can, you know, cut into your skull and move it. Also, um, during brain, typically during brain surgery, you're awake. And that's a safeguard. That's so you, if, if the doctor starts seeing you doing this, like, oh, that's, that's not where I'm supposed to be. They give you so many sedatives that you don't care that you can hear the song going, cutting into your head. Right? I know when my dad had his biopsy for his brain tumor, he called me that night and he sounded drunk as it's like beyond belief. And then, like six hours later, I feel like I'm having nine martinis. I said, well, Dad, they didn't cut into your, they didn't drill into your skull today, didn't they? Yeah, I think so. So what happens is Penfield would go in until he'd find the same sensation. He'd say, I bet that's where the tumor is. Now, one of the things that Penfield was doing at the time is he was keeping notes for research. So not only was he, I mean, his primary thing was he was being, he was, a, he was trying to cure people, trying to help people. But he found things like, for example, he would stimulate something and people would say stuff like, I'm at my fifth birthday party. Like memories would flood back to them. Not as much as people make it empty. <coughs> a lot of textbooks will tell you that he's got all these, there's not a whole lot of evidence that that happened, but like a lot, it did happen. The key thing was more movement and sensations. Okay. But again, this is all electricity. So it's clear then, now we know by the time Penfield's time, we know that we have electricity uh, coursing through our nervous system. There's as much current in your brain, there's as much current in your, in your, in your, uh, your nervous system that could run a, uh, a, a fridge. 
I wouldn't suggest plugging your head into a fridge, but I'm saying there's enough current in your brain to run a major kitchen appliance. Now, it's not like if you touch someone's brain, ow, because that would not be good. So there's actually a drawing that Galvani made of his setup. It's a lightning rod. So there's your lightning rod here. Obviously being done in some sort of evil mad scientist castle with some kind of patio table that looks like it might have come from Walmart. I, uh, that's fine. Which proves also then that he traveled through time. As we all know, eventually this leads to fraud. It's saying that you have to take and hide. You've not seen that episode of like many things? You guys are sad. Yeah? Hello, my baby. Hello, my baby. Gotta love that frog. Okay. So, okay. People are thinking that how are we going to measure this electricity? So it was, it was. Eventually, it, it comes from a lot of different places. The electroencephalogram. Um, Richard Caton, or Caton, or Caton, I don't know how you pronounce his name, was born in Liverpool in 1840, uh, died in 1926, so last century. Um, he's one of the first people that talks about putting electrodes on the skull to measure electrical activity in the brain. He didn't do it, but he talks about it. And his stuff gets kind of forgotten for quite a while. Um, Helmholtz, who's a really important uh, sensory physiologist who, well, he trains, I guess his lab tech, you'd say in today's terms, his lab, lab assistant is a guy named Wilhelm Wundt, the father of psychology. And Helmholtz figures out color vision and a lot of other stuff. One of the things he's measuring is the speed of nervous transition because people get interested in this. Because they realize, because of the evidence from looking at, say, seizures and that, it's not instantaneous. They know it's not instantaneous. So he's got a frog muscle, and he's measuring within single neurons the, the effect, like how long it takes a, a, a neuro, uh, the frog muscle to, to, to contract after being stimulated. And he figures it's between 20 and 40 meters a second. It's not that fast, huh? It's not that fast. You would think it would be almost instantaneous, but it's not. So, Hodgkin, who you've heard of named Hodgkin's disease, Hodgkin's lymphoma, famous physician. Uh, Huxley, this is one of the many Huxleys that did things like write Brave New World, uh, debate in favor of natural selections. There's a whole family of these people. Um, looked at gi uh, giant axons in giant squid. Giant, even axons are this long. You can actually see them with the naked eye. This is why they're great for they were great for science because you know microscopes aren't there today. 
So what they did is they used an oscilloscope and microelectrodes, put them across this axon, and they could measure the electrical potential of the membrane. That's the rest of the potential of it, it's fine. So nothing's making it fire or anything, but they measure it and they get about negative 70 millivolts. That's pretty, pretty, pretty amazing. They eventually developed a mathematical model to describe the <coughs> potential and the action potential of a neuron. Uh, and it's a series of differential equations that we will not go through because it would involve all of you knowing more calculus than you do. And it's beyond the scope of this course and go to graduate school. The important thing is you can mathematically describe this. Calculus is so cool because it allows you to, it's math that describes the universe. It's so it's negative 70 millivolts. When, in 1929, a guy Berger discovers alpha waves, and these are just certain brain waves, and he goes back and he's used, basically using an EEG, and he cites Katon, and he says, this is the guy who said it first, so that's why I mentioned his name. All right. What time is it? Okay. The electrical activity of the neuron, the resting potential is around negative 70 millivolts. This is true if you're a human. This is true if you're a nematode. A nematode has 302 neurons. We have significantly more than that. You're selectively allowing certain ions into the neuron and keeping others out. Do you remember what an ion? Put your hand up if you don't know what an ion is. I can teach it to you in 20 seconds. It's okay if you don't remember. Okay, good. You remember about remember about like atoms and they have protons in the nucleus and electrons in the around them, right? Okay, and it's going to be equal. Like if you got like two in the inside, two protons and two electrons, that's helium. Okay. Now what can happen sometimes is uh, 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 an atom will give up an electron. Now it has one more proton that it has electrons instead of a positive charge. Then it's a positive ion. A chlorine ion, uh, neuron, neuron, a chlorine atom, for example, can take on an extra electron. When that happens, it becomes a negative ion. All it is is a, an ion is just an atom that has a non-zero charge. Atoms typically have zero charge, same number of protons as electrons. If they take on an electron, they have a negative charge. If they give up an electron, they have a positive charge. They can't take on and give up protons. That's called radiation. Okay? So that's all it is. So certain ions are, are allowed into the neuron, and certain ions are kept out. With stimulation, Positive sodium ions are allowed in. And I guess technically that should be Na2. No, just one. Yes. 
So what happens is we have what's called an action potential. So this is going to be only as a very small part of a neuron is that these sodium ions start rushing in. But the fact that they're rushing in at one part of the neuron changes the charge at the next part of the neuron. So it propagates along the neuron. The whole time, there's a system trying to make it not happen. The whole time, the neuron, there's a chemical process, is trying to make it so the neuron doesn't fire, doesn't change from negative 70 over to positive something. Okay? And we will talk more about those processes on Wednesday. Thanks, everyone.
thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures at Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcasts, uh, like Podsafe Music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody, and we'll see you next time.